funny in a uh, hmm. Yeah. Not funny in haha. Hey, we should let this die. Yeah. Like yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very Andy Kaufman-esque way of humor. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we think it's hilarious, and oh, nobody else is in on the joke. So I meant business. I mean business this morning, because that's why I brought the big Bible, because it goes dump. So. Um, I hope I didn't crack this. Okay. Um, you can turn it off. It's pretty cool. If I get the, mouth, the microphone any closer to my mouth, it's going to sound like Darth Vader. Because I'm recovering from a head cold. So it's going to be... Turn to chapter one. <sighs> okay. Um, one other thing Tony didn't announce. Uh, we're trying this experimental pilot thing of man church. Uh, it's the week at the Saturday after Lady Church, um, the 15th, um, and, uh, essentially as much planning as we put into it is that we're going to show up at six o'clock, somebody's going to play guitar, somebody's going to preach, and we're going to worship Jesus. So as where the ladies are like, oh, we're going to have a theme and there's going to be this and that. It's just like, we're going to do this and see what Jesus does. So it's about as much planning as we put into that, so. Um, all right, so turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. As you can tell, the title of this sermon is, Who Do You Think You Are? And you can take that, you know, one of two ways. Who do you think you are? Or who do you think you are? And uh, that's kind of what, uh, what we're going to get into today is uh, kind of how we take things. Now, this epistle was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John, historically, was known to be a very fatherly, very loving apostle as he went around planting churches. And the tone of this letter in its entirety is one of a father, of a good fatherly love for his children. He refers to them as his little children more than once throughout this epistle. And that's something very important to keep in mind as we read through this text, because there are portions where if it's taken out of this context, I've seen people wield as weapons to bring about conformity rather than sanctification. And it's something we need to keep in mind. And this is one of those passages. Now, the Apostle John is conveying the father love, the father's love for his church and for his children in this. And, you know, we read last week about, you know, oh, wait, oh, oh what great love the father has for us. And we get into this next section, verses 4 through 10, and it's, uh, it's not just a warning. It's uh, a way to help us identify you know, who we are and um, who some other folks might be. Verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, he being Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Lord, I would just pray this morning that uh, you help me to convey your truth uh, through these verses. And uh, Lord, I thank you for the revelation that you've given me even through this. I pray that you pass it on to them. I pray that your word be spoken. Anything that I have that's uh, superfluous that you would just cut out. And Lord, uh, we pray that you be glorified and that we be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying, this is a father's warning and rebuke to his children. Taken, on this, taken out of context, this scripture can strike fear into a Christian's heart. Because if we don't look at the context of it, we can start to look at every single mistake that we make and start thinking we fall into this category, thinking this is who we are. We're these people, we need to be afraid of God, and we need to enter into some sort of systematic program to modify our behavior. Well, let's take a look at what it actually means to make a practice of sinning. Because that's where, where he starts out. That's where John starts out. He says, you know, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I went into my uh, favorite Greek dictionary and I found out uh, what the word originally meant. It's poieo, if anyone's interested and loves the Greek like I do. Um, this word means to be the author of, to make ready, to prepare, to celebrate, and to keep. And that was the one that really stuck with me when, it, uh, when I was reading through this. To celebrate. The children of God don't celebrate sin. And that's one thing to keep in mind. I know there's a lot of Christians who struggle with various sins because we have a corrupted flesh. And if there's anyone who's like, I don't struggle with any sin, well you do, it's pride. Um, we are without sin because we're in Christ. We are not perfect in the flesh. And we tend to make too much out of the spacesuits in which we reside and not enough about the true substance of who we are. The true substance of who we are is new creations in Christ, crucified with him, born again and made new. What does it mean to be without the law? Lawlessness. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek is speaking of having contempt in, violation, uh, contempt in your violation for the law with iniquity and wickedness. That means these people that he's talking about, they're not just lawbreakers who are, you know, ignorant of the law. The people that he's addressing here are the people who have a contempt for the law of God. They willingly violate it. They celebrate when they violate it. And they celebrate when the church around them compromises it. 
unless we take a deeper look into this in the context, I think we oftentimes suffer from what uh, I've heard Pastor Paul Dunk refer to as gospel amnesia. We so easily embrace the things that the devil and his minions throw at us that, you know, as he, they toss accusations at us about who we are and what we do and what our real nature is. As an aside, I didn't put it in here, but you know, a lot of people in, they err on two sides when it comes to Satan. And I know we've discussed this before. You know, they tend to think the devil's in everything or the devil's in nothing. But the truth is, if you're a Christian, you've got a bullseye painted on you. And the devil has minions that wander about seeking whom they can devour. They attack you, they attack your finances, they attack your health. Sometimes that stuff really happens. And one of the ways that Satan so often does this is little whispers. You can't do this, who do you think you are? You know, you, uh, you, you say that you're you know, doing well with Christ, you still struggle with this. Scripture says right here, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't still be doing this. You know, I would uh, try to uh, start doing some works here. You got to get on the ball. One of the things I started doing early on in my Christian walk is I started, and, and you know, take this for what it is because it might be crazy, and I don't care if it is because it seems to be true from what the Bible says, but when you hear these accusations thrown at you, are they from the third person of you're this or you're that? Or are you saying, I'm this and I'm that? Don't be ignorant of Satan's willingness to try and influence your mind. If Satan can make you forget who you are, that's the first stumbling block towards a embracing a false gospel of works where it's all up to you. It just takes that one stumble, that one trip where you stub your spiritual toe and if you know, you're not paying attention before you know it, you're like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm in a cult, <laughs> oops. I need to open my Bible to this passage because I wrote it down, but there's something in here I want to cover. See, 1 John chapter 3, this is in the first verse is where we started last week. And the heading in my Bible says very clearly, children of God. We need to remember that's who we are. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, oh sorry, now, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that's the jumping point for where we start off with verse 4. 
a lot of us, we get beaten down into, and some belief systems even push us into the point where we think we're the people in verses four through 10. And we're starting from the wrong place. If we're a Christian who has put our faith in the sacrifice of Christ, we're not four through 10 or one through three. We start as children of God. We start as new creations in Christ. Our deepest desires aren't for sin anymore. And I've had people come to me that were legitimately worried about their salvation. They're like, I just can't seem to kick this sin. And the evidence of the fact that they are a Christian, that they have been redeemed by God, that he has started a work in them that he will carry out to its end, is the fact that sin's a struggle now. Because sin didn't used to be a struggle. Sin just used to be what we did. It was our nature. It wasn't sin. We didn't know it was wrong. We didn't know it was wicked. We didn't know it was evil. Matter of fact, it felt good all the time, everywhere. When the Christian sins, it may feel good in the flesh, but it doesn't feel good in the spirit. And as calloused as a believer might be because of habitual sin, they'll always have that deep down thing that where they know it's wrong. And that's not something that can be brought about by psychological behavior modification. That's an evidence of the fact that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Before I was a Christian, it was no struggle for me to sin. I was spectacular at it. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying God is really good in who he saves. I was a fantastic intellectual atheist. And then God, because he's sovereign, just like, nope. Because he's funny like that. He took Saul, who was the chief persecutor of the Christians, and turned him into one of the leading apostles. I'm not putting myself up on the uh, same level as Paul. I'm just saying God likes to take people like that and show off because he can. People who struggle with addiction, the evidence of the struggle is the evidence of the new nature. Because if you're not God's child, it's just your nature to sin. And the fact that it's a struggle, the fact that you know even deep down, even if you have given in so many times out of the weakness of the flesh, you know deep down in your deepest self who you truly are that this is wrong. That's evidence that you're God's kid. And this is where we get caught up as humans. Because we equate everything inherently to uh, what we can do. And that's what is radically different in the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other religion. Every other religion, you have certain steps you have to do to achieve nirvana. A certain amount of people you got to blow up to uh, reach Allah. It's not how it is with Christianity. Jesus paid it all. And we start from the position as a child of God, perfectly righteous before him, on our way to an eternity with our God. 
This set of verses was put here so that when we read it in context with the first part of chapter, it's a very clear comparison he's using. This is one of the ways that we tell authentic Christians from fake Christians. Because that's a thing. I know we talk a lot about false teachers up here. I've even had people jokingly say, um, you know, you're kind of a heresy hunter. Well, the only reason I talk so much about it is because the apostles talked a lot about it. The book of Jude, it originally started out with Jude saying, hey, I wanted to talk to you about all this stuff, but we got to talk about false teachers because it's a thing. It's just as prevalent a problem as it was in the first century, in the second century church. Because Satan realized he can't destroy the church, so the only way he can try to take it down is to weaken it and corrupt it from within. That's not going to work too, but he's not exactly brilliant when it comes to that. For as crafty as they say the serpent is, he really, he's, you know, for knowing the word of God, he forgot the end part, I'm guessing. It's not going to work. There are people who are going to be in the church waving the Jesus flag, saying they're following Christ and follow me. And they're going to come up with some crazy stuff. That's why I brought this little object lesson here. I once went to this thing that was put forth as a, a deliverance uh, thing. And I believe that people can be afflicted with demons, and I believe that that's a real thing. I've seen demons cast out of people. It's legitimate. They present you with this little manual beforehand, and it's a whole manual of the formula that you have to do in order to cast out all of these demons that you didn't even know you have from all these sins that you don't even remember. That's what they turned it into. They started out with a literal checklist where you're supposed to go back through your history and check off all the sins that you've committed. Hey, have I ever done this? They have everything in here from, do you have allergies, to have you ever participated in bestiality? We're running a wide gambit here, okay? I'm not kidding. They have, uh, on one side, witchcraft, on the other side, low self-esteem. They make it so, in this, if you've ever taken a breath, you've got a demon. And you've got a spiritual curse that's got to be taken care of. Why did this, how did this, how were they, how did they get to the point where this was allowed to become a thing? It's because nobody exercised discernment. Nobody said, ah, hey, that's a wolf. We probably shouldn't do that. Because Jesus paid it all. Amen. The minute that Christ redeemed you. You were free from the curse. Either the sacrifice of Christ is completely sufficient or it's not. That was just a little aside. Um, but that's why we talk about false teachers. Because they come into power in Christian circles and everyone's like, yeah, that's a Christian. 
No, that person is a wolf that for some reason thinks they're a sheep, and then they get angry after they eat one of the sheep, and they're like, oh, why'd you make me eat you? I'm a sheep. No, you're a wolf. This is why we need to harp on false teachers. And this was the type of stuff that was prevalent even in the first century. Granted, they didn't have, they probably didn't have seminars with crappy theology, horrible occultic-like things, but some reason fantastic t-shirts. They didn't have that. But that teaching was still out there. We're righteous because of what Christ did. There is no curse so great. There is no sin so vast that it was not taken care of at the cross of Christ. And there is no weakness that you suffer that was not covered by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Next in this verse, in this section of verses, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. What does it mean to practice righteousness? In the Greek word here, uh, the Greek word itself is um, daikeosu, but essentially it means, it's a broad term used to mean the state of him is the state of him who is as he ought to be, the conditional acceptable before God. The doctrine concerning the way in which we may attain a state approved by God. What is the doctrine that we affirm every Sunday here, which is the way that we may attain a state approved of by God? Faith in Jesus Christ alone in his sacrifice alone. See, he's not giving a prescription here for behavior modification. He's telling these people, this is what wolves look like, and this is who you are. You're righteous. You've put your faith in Christ. But there's people who are among you that are gonna say they put their faith in Christ, but they didn't. This is how you know. And it also should be a reason to celebrate because we know we're not these people. Those who abide in sin are children of the devil. That's not who we are. But you know what? It helps us target out who we really should probably preach the gospel to. We should rejoice at the fact that our salvation was paid for outside of anything we could ever do. Because I know that as I examine my life, I am the furthest person from perfect in this room probably. And I've only got, the only chance I have of eternity is Christ. But he makes it so clear that that's all it takes. His sacrifice was so sufficient that every wicked deed I've ever done and every one I'll ever commit is nothing compared to his saving power.
We are children of God, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that's who we are. We're, and honestly, if you're not one today, it's not that hard to become one. The Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart. It's a, it's a matter of surrender. I'm not gonna say that if you're so calloused from committing a habitual sin that it's just a tiny tug down there that that's like, oh, it's okay. It's still a sign that your soul's in danger. Not of losing your salvation, but destroying your testimony, not being able to lead your family well, not being able to help those around you, and frankly, your derelict in your worship of Christ. That's what the works of a Christian come down to, is the fact that it's about worship. It's not about salvation. It's not about earning the favor of God. It's not about securing some type of provision that he didn't already want to give to you anyway. We know from the scriptures that we are righteous because Jesus bought our righteousness. But are we supposed to continue in those things which we know now are sinful? No, we're not. We're sanctified and empowered by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. But we don't set forth to do good works to earn his favor or his blessing. We do it because it's an outward of our expression of worship to him. That's why we pray to be sanctified in our works. That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because it's not on us to earn his favor anymore. Our works are a matter of worship. None of us are going to have it perfect this side of heaven. And if any of you think you do, well, there's the sin that you found out you struggle with again. There's that pride and ignorance thing. Our obedience to Christ and his commandments is the equivalent of your kids bringing you drawings. It's not that great sometimes, you know, just in artistic ability. There's a big difference between a Picasso and the stick figure uh, you know, playing in the field with a giant beard for some reason. But it's the heart behind it. It's the love and the adoration of that child for their parent. We don't keep to these good works because it's going to save us or it's going to earn us anything. We have the perfect love of a perfect father And the reason that we say and we pray, God, make me holy as you are holy, you know, sanctify me in my heart, my mind, and my soul, isn't because we have to earn anything. It's because we know that our Father's will for us is the best and that we want to honor him. Verse 10 says, by this it's evident who we Evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Part of 
loving God is loving your brother, your fellow Christian. Some of us fellow Christians are obnoxious. We are downright messy people who are in the middle of a sanctification process. But so are you. Same God that saved you by grace saved me by grace. There's a pretty good chance not all of us in this room are going to be BFFs on this side of the border. Some of us are going to have different political affiliations. Some of us are going to have even minoring open-handed theological you know, differences. But the thing that brings us together is who our father is. And if we could start from that place and work our way from that place, I think we would find we have more in common than you think. And do that with any Christian. I'm gonna close with this. And I know I didn't preach for like an hour or anything, but uh, we as Christians, we don't celebrate sin. And we don't set out to make provision for it to flourish. That's evidence of the fact that you're a child of God. If for some reason you don't find yourself in that category, today is the day of your salvation. The Holy Spirit is calling out to you and telling you to repent. To set Jesus as the chief sum of who your existence is about. And that seems like it's a daunting thing. But as you live for Christ, everything else falls into place. Beloved, we are the children of God. We are righteous. We are holy. And this is something that we have to keep in mind at all times, even as we struggle, even as we feel beaten down, even as Satan would try to belittle us uh, through spiritual messengers or physical ones. When I would ask of you all is when somebody asks who do you think you are, remember who you are. You're a child of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Perfect before him. And though your actions may not be perfect, it was never about your actions to begin with. It's about what he did. And the way that we commit our lives to our lives is that love letter to our Father. I would say pray that the Lord purge you from that sin. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Within you is dwelling one-third of the Godhead. You have direct communion with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. Whenever somebody tells me, I feel like God's a million miles away, I remind them of the fact that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's closer to you than your own beating heart. So yes, pray that God sanctify us. Pray that God sanctify his church. Pray that God would highlight the wolves among his sheep so they can be dealt with accordingly. But never forget who you are. 
And from that position as a child of God, that's from where we rejoice and we celebrate and we work from. We work from a place of victory and security. I'm gonna pray one last time and uh, go from there. Father, I just pray that as the world throws at us what it will during the week, because it does, our own flesh, the world amongst us, and the demonic realm is constantly assailing us. <coughs> Lord, I would pray that you remind us who we are. We're your children. We're beloved. We're sanctified. We're to the job of our sanctification. Lord, we'll put our hands to the plow and we will fail. But Lord, we know that we're not saved by our works. Our works are an expression to you of the fact that we love you. Help us to have grace for ourselves, Lord, when we fail. Because sometimes we're our hardest critics. And when we step to the position where we're harder on ourselves than you are harder on us, we, as, we ascend to the, the place where we are God and we need to repent of that. Lord, I pray that you remind us that you're a good father. You show it to us every day. Draw us to your word. Draw us to communion with you. I just pray, Lord, for the church that as we go forth throughout the week that we have opportunities and the strength to minister your gospel to people in our, in our worlds. There's a whole world of people out there that need it and you've equipped us perfectly for it. When we need the words to speak, Lord, I pray that you give us the words to speak. And when we don't need to say anything, we just need to listen, I pray that you remind us of that as well thank you that you will complete the good work that you started in us. And thank you for calling us your children and adopting us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, Pastor Mike. That was awesome. I wrote down tons of notes, quoted some of them on Facebook. If you guys want to share those, it'd be great. Just the things that I thought were pertinent and kind of hit me in the forehead. Um, uh, if you guys are going to the Boxing Hall of Fame Parade, I would encourage you to do something. Grab a couple of these and just hand them out. That's what they're for. I'm not saying take the whole stack and be like, hey, and throw them around like ticker tape. Uh, but maybe just two or three, because maybe who you're standing next to needs a, 